0: Hello and welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor with me, your host, James Mitra. Here at JBM, we think one of the best things you can do for your career is to find a great mentor who you can learn from and be inspired by. So for those of you who are looking for this mentorship, we launched this podcast. In each episode, we'll be sharing career stories, advice and mentorship from some of the most inspiring people we know, and we hope that you can apply some of these learnings to your life and career. I'm always keen to get feedback, so if you have any thoughts once you've listened to this interview, just drop me a line at james at jbmc.co.uk. Today's episode of the 40 Minute Mentor is a special bonus episode, which was recorded live at our JBM drinks event last month. We run these events for a mix of clients and candidates who have helped us spread the word about JBM over the years, and without whom we wouldn't be where we are today. The purpose of these evenings is to bring together a mix of talented people from diverse backgrounds to help them get to know each other better, make new connections, and to learn from some of the best and most inspiring mentors in our network. We keep these events really informal, and along with the great company, make sure there is always free flowing drinks and plenty of pizza. Our special guest and 40 minute mentor at this latest event, and the person that you're about to hear from, is the brilliant former McKinsey consultant, Caroline Murphy, who is now the UK Director of Growth and Operations at WellSimple, the leading fintech business. WellSimple is an online investment manager that combines user-friendly digital tools and personal investment advice to make smart, automated investing available to everyone. They have over 100,000 clients globally, 2 billion in assets under management, and have raised over 250 million Canadian dollars to fund their impressive growth. I am pleased to say that I'm one of those 100,000 clients, having recently set up a junior ISA for my daughter, Sienna, and I am a big fan. Two of the questions that I get asked most by candidates are, how do I move into consulting? Or how do I move into tech? Having moved from Silicon Valley into consulting and then from consulting back to tech, Caroline has experienced this firsthand and she shares her advice on exactly these questions in today's interview. This conversation isn't just focused on Caroline's career advice though, we talk about the challenges that come with growing a rapidly scaling startup, the importance of culture, and her advice to others looking to expand their business into international markets. We also touch upon her views on diversity in tech and what the industry can do to promote it, as well as the key role that mentorship has played throughout Caroline's career. Those who were there on the evening, the JVM team and I got a huge amount from this interview with Caroline. It was great to get the chance to speak with her, and I'm really pleased to be able to share our conversation with you. Now, as this was a live event, our interview was followed by some questions from the live audience, which will explain why a couple of them sound a little bit far away. I hope you will really enjoy this extra special episode of the 40 Minute Mentor and learn lots from the great insights that Caroline has to share. So sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Caroline Murphy. Welcome, everyone, to this special live edition of the 40 Minute Mentor. And Caroline, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I thought we could kick this off, as we always do, with a quick 30-second overview of your CV, if you don't mind.
1: Okay, I'll try to do it fast. So I started out my career actually in academia, studying English literature, decided that was not what I wanted to do with the rest of my professional life, and so then ended up in Silicon Valley doing digital marketing and affiliate marketing for a startup called coupons.com. I then went back to business school kind of broaden my understanding of what business did and transitioned from there into McKinsey, where I spent five years working across just about every sector I could try, decided towards the end of that time that I actually really wanted to go back to the startup world and build a business again, rather than being an advisor. And so made the transition from there to Wealth Simple, where I now lead our UK growth and operations.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. So Simple has been in the press very recently, extremely successful business and you've recently raised 100 million Canadian dollars is that yep. right to sort of grow the platform further so for those that haven't heard of wealth simple can you tell us a little bit about the problem you guys are trying to solve
1: yeah sure so wealth simple is an online wealth management platform and our mission as a company is to make investing and actually financial services more broadly simple accessible and affordable for everyone And we feel very strongly as a company that we want to help people build financial freedom by giving them access to financial advice and to products that actually help them to achieve their long-term financial goals. You know, I think when, when the business was founded originally in 2014 in Canada, the founders felt very strongly that, you know, the financial services industry can be or can seem quite complex. And they really wanted to build a product that made it seem really simple incomprehensible to people who didn't necessarily have deep expertise in investing because, you know, people were putting their money into bank accounts, earning 1% interest rather than investing in the market where they have the opportunity over time to grow that, you know, at a much higher rate. So, you know, we wanted to create a product that was really human in the way that it talked to people about money, in the way that it helped people think about how to manage their money. And so now we're, you know, we've raised another round. We've actually had another We originally raised 165 million Canadian from Power Financial Group. And then we've just now raised another hundred. A little top up. Top up to, to, you know, carry us through the next phase of the journey. Good stuff.
0: Amazing. Well, I'm a customer. I set up a JISA for my three-year-old daughter and I uh, love it. I think it's a brilliant business. And I know that from talking to you as a client, that there's a very unique culture in the business, something that's clearly very important to you and, and the wider team. And I know on the website, there's a whole section that's completely dedicated to, to the culture and the mission. So for those that don't know here, what is it that's so important for you about the culture and how have you ensured that you maintain that? through this kind of exciting growth period.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So yes, we have an entire culture manual, which uh, our, our brand team actually spent quite a lot of time and energy making to really kind of explain who we think we are. And I think it, it covers several different things, right? One is actually explaining ourselves to, to clients, right? So they can sort of understand how we aspire to be a different kind of financial institution. Two is explaining ourselves to potential people who might want to come and work for Simple, right? To help people understand whether it's the kind of environment that they would like to be a part of. And then third, it's actually a great way to you know, try to sort of codify culture, Um, as you scale a business. I was at a a talk recently, actually, where a bunch of founders were talking about culture and the importance of culture. And I think everyone agrees that as you're scaling, culture is the way that you actually help empower the organization to make decisions. When the CEO can no longer actually be touching every decision that gets made, right? The way that you do it is by having very clear principles of culture. And for us, we have five values, which I think is quite common. A A lot of organizations do. But you know, essentially if you're making decisions in a way that is aligned to the values you're probably going in the right direction so for us keep it simple do what's right for each client ship it raise the bar and uh, take care of each other right and we kind of feel that if we're if we're doing things that are aligned with those five things we're moving in the right direction
0: i think they're all, they're all great i like to take care of each other you don't often hear that in financial services specifically but it's something that i think sets you apart and uh, i've seen from the stuff online and our conversations that there's also a sense of humor that that really comes across in the business that I think is, uh, is really interesting and, and attractive, probably to prospective candidates. Yes.
1: So. I remember I was actually, the very final line of the manual, I believe, is something like, Why do Well Simplers like karaoke so much? And it's sort of like, We believe that everyone should have access to great karaoke, too. Um, <laughs> and I was kind of like, I'm going to be okay here. Awesome.
0: <laughs> it's gonna be fun. We all like a bit of karaoke. <laughs> so I, I wanted to come back a bit to, to your background and, <laughs> and experience before Well Simple. Obviously, at JBM, we speak to a lot of people that are looking to move either into consulting or out of consulting into fintech or tech. You've made kind of both of these leaps. So it would be great to kind of go back and and understand a bit about kind of why you went into consulting in the first place and then why you left it. And I guess any advice for those in the room and those listening about how they could possibly choose between a career in in tech or consulting?
1: Well, hopefully you can choose between many things over the course of your career. (laughs) I think for me... So I said, I I went from academia to Silicon Valley and I got to work with some amazing people doing digital marketing there. And I learned about a lot of stuff that had not really, I'd not come across in my studies of Jane Austen before. Um, (laughs) But I found that, you know, I felt like I'd sort of ended up in this little corner of digital marketing in tech in California, you know, and that there was a big world out there with a lot of different things. And I lacked that kind of bigger picture of how it all fit together. So I went back to business school as a sort of first step on that to sort of actually say, you know, I want to learn a little bit about operations. Turns out I like operations. You know, I want to learn more about finance. I want to learn more about, you know, emerging markets, all these other things. And consulting to some extent was a continuation of that journey for me. I wanted to work, you know, with really sort of smart, motivated colleagues. I wanted to have the opportunity to work on a bunch of different and interesting challenges. And consulting provided that way of doing it where, you know, I could literally go work in a different sector every two to three months at a different organization with a different problem, et cetera, and really just kind of get a much broader perspective on business. At the same time, building a really great toolkit about how to think about all those different kinds of problems. And so for me, that was, you know, it was a great way to do that. And But then I kind of reached a point where I felt like I had a great opportunity to do that and wanted to actually have the responsibility and the accountability for building the business again, rather than being the advisor. And so during my final year in consulting, actually, I had the opportunity, we had basically an internal VC within the firm. And I pitched an idea to build a product to actually help really large scale companies manage big global transformations. And so I had the opportunity to actually, you know, work with developers and product designers, et cetera, again, to do that. Remember that I actually quite liked doing this kind of stuff and realized that it was probably the right moment to, to head back into that world. So going back to tech felt quite natural actually from that. And I, you know, my time at well Simple has been great so far in the sense that I have had the opportunity to do all of that again at a, at a, you know, but coming in from not just the digital marketing side of the world, but actually to have that broader view. Amazing.
0: How did that opportunity come about then?
1: The well, the well Simple One. So actually, a headhunter reached out to me about it. Ah, okay. No? Not JVM, <laughs> um, But uh, it was, you know, I, I had been having some conversations. I'd actually, most of my time at McKinsey was spent in healthcare. And I did feel quite strongly about going to a company where I could see the impact, the sort of social impact that what that company was doing could have. So for me, healthcare, I did a lot of work in med tech and biotech. And for me, it was very tangible, the impact that that kind of work could actually have on patients, on their families, etc. Um, so you might say financial services. I don't know if that's the same thing. Mm-hmm. But I think part of what resonated with me about the well Simple opportunity when it came along was the mission of the company, was this thing around. We actually want to help people who feel intimidated or overwhelmed by investing understand how to do it so that they can take advantage of it, so they can meet their financial objectives, be it saving for a house, you know, paying for their children's education, whatever it may be. And so what really attracted to me was the mission of the company. I'd always been interested in investing actually as a, as a consumer of it. It's something I voluntarily read about, you know, so it felt like a a good fit from that perspective. And then also it was a a company where, you know, high growth, looking to sort of really build the business here in the UK and scale it. So it just kind of felt like the the perfect combination of factors. Amazing.
0: And Talking about scaling the company, have you got plans to grow the team considerably in the next year? And I guess what's going to be your approach to building that high-performing team that it will need to be to keep up with the expectation?
1: So we are going to be, we are looking to grow the team here in the UK. You have mm. my business card. Yes, I do. Um, we are going to be growing the team here. We're going to be trying to do it in an efficient way. We want to make sure we find the right people because, as I said, like the culture piece is really important. And when you have a small team, actually, each incremental person you add, you know, it has a really powerful impact on the overall nature of the business. And, you know, I think we're going to build out some of our technical capabilities here, which is great. But it's, you know, I think in terms of how do you maintain a high-performing team, right? For me, the biggest thing is always about transparency, and it's actually another—it's not in our values, but it's actually a thing we believe in really strongly as a company. For me, it's, you know, people don't often necessarily sit down and actually talk about what is individually motivating each of them. Like, why are we here in this room? Well, we can kind of say we're all here because we love Well Simple, we love the brand, we love the values, but like what gets you excited on a day-to-day basis, right? To, to get up and come into work. And I try to have regular sit-downs with my team where we actually kind of talk about it quite openly. And it was amazing the first time that we did it when people kind of You could see the light bulb going off about like, that's why you do that that way. It's because, you know, this is the thing that gets you really excited. And so, you know, one of the challenges will be as we scale and as particularly as we add new team members with new types of capabilities, how do you keep that really sort of open and transparent communication going?
0: Yeah, totally. Totally. When you're hiring for these sorts of teams what are the criteria that you use when assessing because okay, as you've just said as you're growing and you're bringing new types of personalities potentially this diversity of personalities is, is is important um but also different skill sets possibly roles that haven't existed before how do you go about it when you're looking to interview people in a team is it Skills? Is it attitude? Is it experience? Uh, I
1: think it's got to be all of them, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> are,
0: there things, are there particular things that you sort of take precedence for
1: you? So, I think, I mean, obviously, in any particular moment, if you're hiring for a particular role, there is a skill set likely that you're trying to get in, and um, particularly uh, so the team here is quite small. So, right, you know, if I need a financial advisor, they've got to be a qualified financial advisor, it's it's required. And similarly, you know, if I need an engineer, like they've got to be able to build in the languages that we, we want to have. But I think then for me, a couple of things that really stand out are sort of curiosity, right? One of the things about being a small company or a small part of a company is that things are changing all the time, right? And, and actually flexibility and the ability to kind of be doing this thing one day and then actually switch gears and do something totally different is incredibly valuable. And for some people, that's a really exciting proposition. For some people, it's a really scary and intimidating proposition, right? And so actually recognizing when people are going to be successful in that kind of environment or not. Is actually quite important, right? Because if mm-hmm. someone's finding it upsetting that they have to change what they're doing regularly, like they're not going to be very happy in, in the job either. So curiosity, flexibility. And actually, we also have a part of our culture is around being maker owners, which basically is to say that if you see a problem, and you think we need to fix it, it's on you to decide to own it and, and carry that forward. And I think that's really important in a startup environment because there will be things for whom there is no natural owner. Yeah, sure. Right. And, and you, you want people who feel the impetus to actually take the initiative and figure an out answer. how to get it wrong, yeah, right? so, so.
0: And I guess that's where having a great culture is really important. So they, they're not fearful of taking accountability and ownership for things because there isn't a blame culture. It's, you know, it's sort of environment where you c- you can make mistakes, but that sort of ownership piece is really respected.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think actually, we really do believe that unless you're, if you never fail you're not trying hard enough and when i was actually interviewing for the role you know we talked about that quite openly like we, we want to experiment with these things we want to try this we want to push it. and that was actually one of the things that made me excited to join the company and
0: it's linked to the the value of ship it, isn't
1: it yes it's, exactly it's exactly that, which i've
0: never I've never heard before but it's yeah. uh, it's a really good one yeah
1: it just it's it, basically what it means for us is you know Get it out, like write the code, get it out into the market and see what actually yeah. happens, right? And we're very fortunate in Canada that we have a whole bunch of very enthusiastic testers who have basically said, like, I'll try any new product that you put it out. So um, we can actually test it with that community and so forth to, before we roll it out more broadly. Fantastic.
0: Um, we've talked about some of the, the positives of Well Simple mm-hmm. and the amazing values, the, the funding. It sounds like a very exciting time ahead, but I'm sure it hasn't been completely rosy all the time and there's been a few challenges along the way. So... I'm sure everyone here will be interested to understand some of the, what have been some of the more difficult things over the past year that you've had to contend with?
1: I think that we have tried to grow here in the UK in a very capital efficient way, which is to say we haven't done any big marketing blasts here. And yet, you know, you're trying, you're still trying to grow the business aggressively and and hit targets. And so I think, you know, there's a challenge around how do you get quite scrappy (laughs) about how you do that, right? And... We want to build a brand that we have a very strong tone of voice, we have a very strong brand in Canada, and we want to make sure that that translates through to the market here. But in spite of shared language, shared culture, shared history, it's actually a different market. Right. Talking about money is complicated in many cultures, and it's probably even more, it's much more so here than it is even in Canada and the US. I probably see several people in the room like flinching as I say that. Even.
0: Um, <laughs> it's funny, as, as headhunters, we don't flinch at all when it comes to money. So it's a daily occurrence, but I, I totally know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, but, no,
1: but I mean, people for people, money is a very sensitive thing, right? It's 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 about security, it's about your family, your home, and it's things that people get very uncomfortable talking about in certain contexts. And so part of our mission is also around trying to open up that conversation and get people to talk about things much more openly. So, you know, for example, apparently men talk much more openly about money than women do, which actually people have traced to part of the wage gap has actually been traced to that because men have a much better idea of what their peers are making. And so they know what they can sort of negotiate for, whereas women don't talk about it. And therefore they have no idea what's out in the market. So, you know, it's a really interesting Interesting, phenomenon of the way that people feel it's a taboo. So here, one of the challenges has been, how do we go out and and initiate these conversations in a way that makes people really excited to engage around them? And actually, we have found that events with women's networks are really, really exciting. Like women are actually dying to talk about this stuff. You just have to give them the right forum. So, yeah, I would say that's one of the big challenges.
0: And it brings up very nicely, a lovely segue into my next question around... Diversity, actually. Yes. Um, I've had the pleasure of meeting a number of female leaders in tech and fintech, but I think it's safe so to say there's still not enough. You've very successfully throughout your career, and you've got this fantastic role at Wellsimple. But I'm keen to get your thoughts on what is still probably a male-dominated industry. What's your perspective on how tech and fintech are doing with regards to diversity and inclusion in general? It'd be interesting. I'm sure people in the room would be interested to hear that.
1: Yeah. I mean. I- I would never profess that I have a particularly profound view on this. I think we all see the news. We all hear what's out there. And I think there's, you know, we we know there's a problem. It gets brought up in different ways and in different contexts. I think what I'm excited and inspired about right now with regard to women and diversity in tech more generally is that I feel like people are much more willing to try it out than they have been previously. I think, you know, if I look at a lot of my friends leaving consulting, it's of both genders, it's to go to startups, it's to go into tech. And that means that inherently, like the number of women who are going in must be (laughs) improving on some level. I think that we take inclusion quite seriously. And I I would love to continue to increase our diversity because I really do think that it You know, the diversity of thought, the diversity of experience that you bring to decisions means that you're making better decisions. And anytime you're in a consumer facing business, right, you actually, the more diversity you have, the more you can understand how other people are going to respond to your product. So my team here in the UK, which I'm happy about is 40% women, which is great. I want to keep moving and keep that moving. But I do think that, you know, there's room to improve our diversity around other dimensions and we'll continue
0: to work on that. Thank you. That's really interesting insight. Um, We're almost getting towards the end of our chat and we're going to open it to the floor to everyone. So if you haven't already got some questions lined up, get thinking. As the host of a a podcast called The 40 Minute Mentor, uh, mentorship is very important. Since we launched it, actually, we've had lots of people reaching out, just talking about mentorship and how important it is to them. I wanted to ask you, have you got a mentor? And if so, how have they helped you in your career to date?
1: Absolutely. I would not be anywhere in my career without without having had wonderful mentors and sponsors, actually, people who really cleared the way for me and gave me really incredible opportunities. I can think back to many of them, but, um, you know, my first boss, say, technically my second boss in Silicon Valley, was a wonderful guy who, you know, was really always willing to go the extra mile to actually explain things to me. I was coming out of academia, I knew nothing about technology and how it worked. And yet, you know, he sort of saw that I was willing to put in the time and energy to understand it and basically helped make that happen for me. I was very fortunate at in consulting to work with a couple of really great partners and senior partners who, again, you know, just created opportunities for me and I texted one of them earlier just saying like I really really could use your thoughts on two things right you know and then I had the opportunity as well to work for Dame Vivian Hunt who is the who leads McKinsey in the UK and you know she has a, an incredible ability to see the world around her in a very unique way and I learned a lot from,
0: from her amazing wonderful last question Caroline for any of our listeners and anyone in the room here today thinking about making a career move what one piece of advice advice would you give them before they take the plunge
1: I guess for me I think it's really worth taking the time to really think about what it is you want to do next that sounds really pedantic but I feel like I see a lot of people move either because they're trying to run away from something or because there's some kind of bright shiny thing that sounds really sexy and cool but people don't necessarily actually take the time to understand whether it's what they're going to like doing. At the same time, I'm also going to say, do it, right? Like it's it's sort of like ship it, just like do it, Mm -hmm. get it up. But I think that, you know, actually really taking the time for me, at least to talk to a lot of people about what they did, how the businesses they were running worked or whatnot. And actually to really listen to my gut and say like, that sounds exciting or like, "Eh, that sounds terrible. Right. So, and, and really to sort of work out like, where is your genuine excitement going to come from? Where are you going to learn something new and interesting that will take you, to the next step in your journey, et cetera. It can take time. And one approach, I guess, would be to just kind of be doing that constantly. Be curious, be open, always be asking people about what they do. But if you're actually looking to make a career switch, like, you know, I think I think it's worth taking the time to do it right rather than than, than diving in.
0: It's Great advice um, and a brilliant way to, to finish our chat. Thank you so much, Caroline. It's great to have you here as a 40 Minute Mentor. And we have a fantastic crop of talented individuals uh, in front of us who I'm sure have lots of things to ask. So I'm going to hand it to the floor and a, a little reminder to please speak loudly for the sake of our microphones. So, Hazer, after you. You
1: mentioned karaoke. Yes. What is your karaoke song? Oh, gosh. <laughs> uh, so many. Probably All That Jazz from Chicago. Oh. oh. <laughs> <Awesome>. Love
0: that. <laughs> that
2: one. Fred. Hi. Um. One of the experiences I've had at a number of programs is... You may start with a team that's fit for purpose when <coughs> very yeah. early in your development, but then as you both grow up, that same team may not be fit yeah. for purpose, and that's some right. people may develop, but not everyone. So you may have people who are very loyal, very hardworking, very typically they've been early in their career, but it's the company has morphed into something different, and their skill set may not be appropriate for the company at that time. For sure, and how do you deal with that in the company when you know, training and development yeah. and manage that process and effectively say, oh, look, I'm sorry,
1: but yeah. You know? I will not profess to have great wisdom on that point. It's a phenomenon I've witnessed far more, I think, probably as a consultant in some respects than, than I've had to yet manage at Well Simple, which I'm grateful for. But it's obvious it's really hard, right? And I, I think that sometimes you see situations where the person recognizes it themselves, right? They're they're either not they know they're not performing as well, or they know that they're they, they can see their role kind of getting marginalized or whatnot. And and sometimes I think it's just you have to just have the open conversation with them about whether this is something where they're going to really be successful and they're going to enjoy it. I mean, it's always better, I think, if you can kind of achieve that mutual happy parting of the ways. But sometimes it's not the case, right? And and I think yeah, you, you often have people who are really good at at the first part of of getting something off the ground, then you have people who are good for scaling and then you have the people who want to run at scale, right? And, and those often have to be different people and it's, it's hard. It's part of the trick of it. But I think, you know, the conventional wisdom is that it's always better to, to act on those things sooner rather than later, because otherwise it tends to fester.
0: Any other questions? Uh, Karina. So
2: one of the things that often attracts people to work in fast-growing startups is, that freedom, that flexibility, the lack of structure, hierarchy sometimes. But as organizations grow, often what we certainly see is that people start to crave a bit more visibility. Like, how do I grow here? How do I breath How have you managed that
1: at It's a tricky one, right? And I think it's the lack of hierarchy is great in terms of that ownership piece I was talking about before, right? People that people feel the need to just sort of leap in and do stuff because they feel a strong sense of of pride and ownership in getting the business off the ground. I think that. Over time, that flexibility piece comes in a little bit more, right? It's sort of like if you are doing really well at this one area, then actually when a new need comes up, you can be offered the opportunity to pivot into a slightly different role. So to go from operations to sort of product or something like that, right, as, as the business needs evolve. But I think that when you're very tiny, it is hard to give people that clarity and they really want it sometimes. Trying to be scrappy again and sort of use specific project opportunities or client facing opportunities or whatever it may be to create ways for them to build i try to ask my team to think about like specific skills that they want to build or specific things they want to do that aren't necessarily job titles mm-hmm. if that makes sense thank you you see hey um so you mentioned about the accountability and in a
2: small team and the startup i can see how that's a, a repulsive way of working and gets everyone walking and can get people being more innovative and responsible. Have you given any consideration to how you might manage that as you scale? So what I mean by that is just when you're a small team and everyone's kind of multifunctional and of scrappy and trying to get scale, then as you progress and become a scale company, suddenly you have CMOs, CFOs, COOs, and people that are actually responsible for the things that perhaps you and the team have once, once been able to empower to kind of attack Mm-hmm. May actually then need to play the role. So, my question, I guess, is have you given any consideration to that yet in how your and how it will scale and how people
1: might manage that? Yeah, I mean, well, so I think answer number one to your question is that's where culture starts to come in, right? And I think that there is something around when you're building something together, you know, it's Managers and leaders in the organization obviously have to hold people accountable, but it's actually that much more powerful if you can have everybody in the organization holding each other accountable for things, right? And so the way the values, at least in our company, play into that, it, you know, is that they give you a common language. To talk about these things and so actually you know if we're contemplating a change to a product you know someone from the client success team will say is this actually really what's right for each client right and it, it gives you a, a sort of grounding and a place to talk about that and to hold each other accountable for making sure we make the right decisions but it you know i think every organization it's a question of how do you actually ensure that people deliver on what they're going to deliver <laughs> it's super
2: interesting That's actually how you it. approached things so up is exactly that, so we have values for one of those customer-led decisions. So often when we make a decision or discuss a decision amongst the team, someone will hold the other person accountable to say customer-led decision, will mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly.
0: Great. James? Darren, thank you. Um, just
2: correct me if I'm wrong, but particularly the two values I can remember are quite anchored in the here and now. It's about respecting each other, and it's about getting the product out the door. Mm-hmm. And you know, where you spoke about making wealth simple, I'm not far um, from undermining undermining the task that we have uh, ahead of you there. But for most young companies, many of employees in that companies are motivated by a vision. Mm-hmm. So when you look down the telescope, what does success look like when wealth simple pack up their bags mm-hmm. and go home and be happy about the impact?
1: Well, actually, I think it's, we're not packing up our bags. That's the, that's the whole thing, right? So as I said, what we want to do is we want to build a financial services brand and company that helps people build financial freedom, right? And we want to, we've, we've never been bashful about the fact that we want to do this internationally. We expanded to the U.S. when the company was only about two years old, and then to the U.K. six months after, or nine months after that. And we want to keep going. So we really believe that if we can help make this experience of investing and and interacting with money across many dimensions better for people. Like we want to keep doing that in as many different places and in many different ways as possible. And
2: come back to i What does that mean? What does, what does financial freedom mean for the, for the mass population that you can make an
1: approach? For me, I think it's actually quite personal, right? It's about it's about how do you give people the confidence in their finances to live the lives they want to live and to achieve the goals that they have set. And we, you know, our financial advisors can help them think about what those goals are and and how they can best get there. But it really is deeply, deeply personal. It's not mass. And so for some people, it's they want to be able to put that down payment on the first house. For some people, it's I want to leave a legacy for my children. For some people, it's I want to golf for the last 40 years of my life. You know, Whatever it may be that they want to do, we want to give them the tools to help them get there.
0: Thank you so much, Carmen, for sharing your insights. I really appreciate it. (laughs) I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the 40 Minute Mentor brought to you by JBM. So if you'd like to tell us what you thought of the podcast or find out how we can help you with your next career move, please do get in touch at info at jbmc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you.